I'd like you to turn to Genesis chapter 28. And I want to start out with a word of encouragement for you all. It's Christmas time, and we all need to be built up some. Here's your thought for the day. God doesn't need you. Listen to me carefully. God does not need your strength. He does not need your capability. He does not need your talents. As a matter of fact, if we take a look at the overall story of the Bible, we will find that God uses the useless. God uses the useless, the outcasts, uh, the people that are thought to be minimal. Uh, and so I want to talk to you a little bit about that today. You know, our whole series is based on typologies, and we need to have an understanding of typologies. I'll, I'll continue to explain this as we go through, through Christmas Day. Uh, but typologies are hints. They're shadows of something that is to come. Um, they are imperfect. We need to understand that they are not a perfect representation, but they are little hints that reveal to us something about the character and nature of God, something about his plan of redemption, something about his only son, Jesus Christ. There are pointers in the Bible that all the way through the Old Testament point us to the New Testament and the advent of Christ. And and then there are pointers that go through the entire Bible, including uh, the New Testament, that point us towards the perfection that will come uh, at the end of time and when Jesus Christ and his body are glorified and united in heaven. Uh, so they're portents, but they're not perfect. So, and, and let me just give you a couple examples so that we can get a beat on this. Uh, David is a type of Christ. Uh, but lest we think that David is Christ, uh, we put us in a position where we'd have to go, oh, well, what about Bathsheba? He stumbled pretty badly. Does Christ stumble? No. Christ does not stumble. He's sinless. David points towards him, a leader, a redeemer, uh, somebody who leads his people into uh, uh, the freedom of the promised land, and, uh, but he's not the perfect representation of Christ. Another one is Adam. Uh, Adam is a type of Christ. As a matter of fact, uh, we'll find out next week that Christ is called the second Adam. So Adam is, points towards Christ. He's representing, uh, representative of mankind. Um, matter of fact, through him come sin and death, but he's not the perfect representative of mankind. We're still waiting for that to come, which will be Jesus Christ. So Adam is an imperfect representation of Jesus Christ, and that's an example of a typology. Uh, there's a hint, there's a form there, uh, but there's not the exact perfect representation. Today we're going to talk about another one. We're going to talk about a girl named Leah. And uh, let me tell you something about Leah that will describe everything you need to know about her. Leah is the girl that nobody wanted. She's the girl that no one wanted. So we're going to look at Leah, and then we'll look at Mary, and then we'll look at what they have in common, and then we'll try to bring some commonality to us uh, and what that might mean to us today. So Leah's story actually begins with Jacob. Jacob is born to Isaac and Rebekah in Genesis 25. He has an older brother named Esau. And one of the first things we learn about Jacob, he's not a very good guy. Matter of fact, he's kind of disgusting. Uh, His older brother Esau is a hunter, a gatherer, and, you know, Esau's out hunting one day. And he walks in the house and he kind of says, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. 
I'm famished. I'm exhausted. I'd give anything for something to eat. And uh, the, Jacob is there making some soup. And Jacob kind of looks at his brother and goes, Really? You give anything for something to eat? Well, I've got some soup here. <laughs> and Esau says, What do you want? He said, I want your birthright. I want your inheritance. I want everything that will ever be important to you for this bowl of soup. Now, I think it says a lot about Esau that he agrees. He makes a trade. He trades away his birthright for a bowl of soup. Ironically, a little while later, we find out that Esau is not only a hunter, he's quite a cook. So he's so exhausted, I can't make any food for myself. I'll give everything in my, that belongs to me for this bowl of soup, and he makes a trade. So we find out right away that, that Jacob is going to take advantage of those people around him, and later on we find out he's a liar and a manipulator. He manipulates his father into giving him the blessing that Esau should rightly have as the older brother. Covers his hands with hair, goes into his brother, his father who's dying and misrepresents himself and steals Esau's blessing. Now Esau's got his own problems, but what we see is we see the nature of Jacob. He's a manipulator and he ends up with all the blessings of the family. The only thing the father wants of him is to not marry a Canaanite woman. They're living in Canaan. So in order to find a wife, he has to go back to the homeland. He has to go back to where the tribe is, where the, his extended family is. And, and he does that. He travels to Haran. Uh, this happens in Genesis 28. And on the way, he has a transformational experience. He's at what will become Bethel. He goes to sleep. He has a dream. He sees this ladder that's going into heaven. Angels are coming up and down on it. Um, he, he gets an impression, and he just decides that this is a holy place. I'm going to put a rock here so I can commemorate this. But what happens right there is you begin to see a transformation in Jacob. Things begin to change. There's a stirring in his heart that begins drawing him towards God. He makes a vow. He says that he will follow God and give God one-tenth of everything he has. So Jacob begins to change at Bethel. He finally gets to Haran. He's uh, at the local watering hole in Genesis 29, and he meets a girl named Rachel. Now, Rachel is part of his clan, part of his tribe. And he, it, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of love at first sight. He takes one look at Rachel, and he's smitten. Anybody believe in love at first sight? You know, the first time I met my bride, she blushed when she met me. And I thought, well, there's something special going on here. I think it made me blush too, okay? Jacob went through that with Rachel. He said, wow, I really like her. So he helps her water her animals. She invites him home and to meet her father, Laban, another kinsman, and Jacob decides he'd like to hang around for a while. Laban has some ideas. Uh, but Jacob's got something else in his mind, okay? And here's what happens in Genesis 29, starting with verse 15. And Laban said to Jacob, Because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be. He said, You help me out. Uh, let me know what I can do for you. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel, okay? Now, the very first thing that we see is we've got these two daughters. 
We're about to find out that Rachel is of the age to be married. In this culture, was probably 13, 14, maybe 15 years old. And Leah is older than that and not married. She's at home. Okay? So, now, again, we, we have to view this through the filter of the culture. Um, people would begin looking upon that and going, what's wrong with Leah? How come she's not married yet? How come somebody hasn't claimed her? I mean, marriage was a little bit different than it is back then. You know, the way a marriage was arranged is a young man would see a young girl. He'd take his father over to the girl's father's house. They'd sit down and talk. Say, well, my guy would like to marry your girl. You know, what can we do? They'd, some cows and some chickens would pass hands and so on and so forth. And a commitment would be made. And then uh, sometime after that commitment, usually about a year, uh, there would be a marriage celebration and they would set up a home together. There was no dating. There was no engagement. People had to learn how to fulfill the commitment they made in betrothing themselves to each other, and they had to learn how to love each other. They had to work at their relationship. They had to, they had to learn how to live with each other and to tolerate each other. So it, it, a different culture, a different situation, and Leah is a little bit older and unmarried. Now, in the next verse, we hear this. Leah's eyes were weak. Now, you can pick up any number of commentaries this morning, and they will tell you that what that really means, that Leah was not easy on the eyes. Okay? It's not what this verse means. Okay? Again, we have to look at this through the culture. Uh, the Mid-Eastern culture back then uh, had a different definition of beauty than we did a beautiful woman back in that time, or leading all the way through about the second century or so, was a little bit stocky, had some muscles on her. I mean, she could take care of the livestock. She could take care of, of the, the, the farm. She could do uh, work in the land. And so not necessarily tall and slender the way we would look. You know, if we were doing this movie, we would get somebody that looked a little bit like Cleopatra to pay, play Rachel. The people back then would go, why did you put her up there? She's not very pretty. Okay. The people of the Mideast thought the beauty focused on the eyes. And if you had dark eyes and they had sparkle, if they had some life into them, uh, then they would count that as beautiful. If you had light-colored eyes, they would think, well, that's not our definition of beauty. Leah could have been blue-eyed. We don't know. We don't know. But when we talk about her being uh, light in the eyes, eyes were weak, it, 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 it's probably that her eyes were of a weaker color. So this meant that Leah was not necessarily as desirable. Now, that sounds a little offensive to us because we, we live here in this modern culture, but when you're living in a culture where your decision to be married is based on how you see somebody... Not on how well you know them, but what they look like and whether or not you feel like you're drawn to them, this could mean a lot. So whatever the reason, Leah's not married and Rachel is her younger sister and Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So we have this Leah, an agrarian culture, a simple woman in a simple culture. She's older She's unmarried, her eyes were weak, and there would be a stigma. There would be whispers in town. There would be 
a certain perspective on Leah, and Leah would be aware of it. She would know. Verse 18, it says, Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you to Laban seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me for seven years, he said. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. This guy is so smitten, he stayed just on how she looks. He stays for seven years with Laban and does his work for him. Now, if you know the story, you know what happens. When the seven years are over, Jacob goes and says, well, I want to claim my bride. And the father says, oh, you're right. Let's have a wedding ceremony. Here's a tent over here. Uh, in the middle of the night, I'll send my daughter to you, and you can, you can consummate the marriage. And he does that, except he sends Leah. Jacob wakes up in the morning, and he is married to Leah. Now, that's not what Jacob counted for, Okay. Uh, so he goes back and he said, hey, you fooled me. You deceived me. He's upset. It's kind of ironic, even though Jacob is going through a transformation, he's still paying for his past mistakes, isn't he? The deceiver has been deceived. The manipulator has been manipulated. And so Jacob realizes the situation he's in. The father said, oh, you must not understand how we do things in our town. The, the older daughter always goes first. I thought you knew that. You want Rachel? Yeah, I'm going to have to have another seven years. So you can see what the father's doing. He's totally taking advantage of the situation. And Jacob loves Rachel so much, he says, okay, that sounds reasonable to me. Uh, And at, at that time, in verse 30, so Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Now, do you think for a moment that Leah doesn't understand what's going on? You think for a moment that Leah is not aware of the fact that her father had to deceive Jacob in order to marry her off? And because Jacob didn't just go, okay, well, that's fine, we'll make a life together. He said, no, I want to wait for Rachel. So Leah sees this, she knows. And the situation is hard on Leah. Let me tell you how hard it is. If you take a look in verse 31, it says, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Leah's husband hated her and loved her younger sister, Rachel. So not only does she bear this stigma of my dad had to trade me off, I'm older, I'm weak in the eyes, but my husband hates me and loves this other woman. So when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, oh my gosh, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. There's a little shift that occurs here, and Leah might not see it, but God is working in her life. I think the writer has very carefully chosen his words, God opened her womb. Now, to the people around Leah, this would be a blessing. And maybe cause just as many whispers as all of the other events would, but something is happening in Leah's life. I don't know if Leah felt that way, because she's still struggling personally, 
Uh, see, I, I don't know if, you know, if, when, when I stand here and say that God is working in Leah's life, there must be some plan. God is moving very deliberately in her life. Leah's having babies. Rachel is not. Uh, babies were so highly valued. We talked about this last week. Uh, they were the inheritors. They were the maintainers of the bloodline. Uh, Leah, the blessings are coming through Leah, not through Rachel. Rachel's not having any babies. People are like, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? So I don't know if Leah felt that, but we can see that God was moving in Leah's life. So in verse 32, and Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because, watch this, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She says, now that I've had a son, now that I've shown that I can do something that Rachel can't, maybe my husband will love me. Maybe this will cause our relationship to start new. Maybe this will bring a facet into my relationship with my husband that hasn't existed before. Then we see this in verse 33. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, nothing's changed yet. Reuben doesn't change anything. She's still hated. She's still laboring under this burden that she has. But because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son, and she called his name Simeon. What she's saying, okay, maybe, maybe now. Rachel's not having any babies. I've got two of them. They're both sons. Maybe now my husband will love me. And in verse 34, again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me. And literally what she's saying, this is a good uh, uh, translation, but what she's saying is maybe now, maybe now my husband will pay some attention to me. Maybe now we can have a loving relationship. Maybe now we can have all the things that I've been looking for in this relationship. Because I've borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. You see, you see Leah's desperation? She's unwanted by her father. Abandoned by her family. Unloved by her husband. Husband had to be tricked into marrying her. She's unable to garner love. She could be standing there going, no matter what I do, nothing seems to work. I I can't seem to get the love and attention that I want. She must have she must have felt useless. She must have felt like an outcast. She's incapable of making things happen in her life. And I think think she was missing something really important. I think she was missing the fact that God was blessing her all along. That God had been moving in her life. She had incredible blessings, but they weren't enough for her at that particular point. Look what happens next. I think she has her own transformational moment. Verse 35, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, instead of saying, maybe now my husband will pay attention to me, 
Maybe now he'll love me. Maybe now we can have a relationship. She says, this time I will praise the Lord. And therefore she called his name Judah. And the name Judah sounds very much like the Hebrew word for praise. She names him thanks to God. Then she ceased bearing. Do you see what happened? Nothing in Leah's wife, life changed. Same situation with her husband. Same situation with the family. But Leah's life turns around. It pivots around this moment when she decides to begin thanking God rather than complaining. When she decides to begin focusing on her blessings rather than complaining about the things she doesn't have. And we know the life turns around because the next thing that happens is Rachel then begins having some babies. Uh, Leah, in an effort to keep up, (laughs) uh, gives her servant to Jacob, and the servant has two babies. And the very next thing we hear out of, I will give thanks to God for this, is Leah in Genesis 30, 11 saying, good fortune has come. And in verse 13 saying, happy am I, for women have called me happy. She's happy. She's filled with joy. And let me tell you something. She's filled with joy to the point that the people around her can see a change in her. People have called me happy. The people around her can see that she's at peace, that she's content. All because she's put her focus on God instead of her situation. God was working in her life all along. He had a plan for Leah. Let me tell you how extensive the plan was. Okay? He used Leah to bring about Judah. He used Judah to bring about Jesse. He used Jesse to bring about David and then Solomon and used them to bring about Jesus Christ. See how important Leah is? See how blessed Leah is? God had been working all that time. Brought Jacob up from wherever he was to her land. Introduced him to the daughter God was working in that dreadful situation where the father feels like he's got to substitute the younger daughter and get her out of the house. God was at work in all of the good and all of the bad that happened to Leah. In Leah's weakness, in her inability to change her situation, we see the glory of God rise up and put on this dazzling display of blessing and honor and praise, not just to God himself, but to Leah. Leah gets lifted up as God begins working in her weakness. God uses the useless. God uses the outcasts. God uses the lowly regarded and the incapable For his glory, if you stop to think about it, there's no other way for it to happen. We see all this again in the life of a young Nazarite girl named Mary. Turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 26. Luke 1, 26. In the sixth month, 
the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, let's just stop right there for a second. When you understand Nazareth, you'll understand exactly how God uses the useless and the outcasts, okay? Uh, Israel was originally one kingdom. It broke into two. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. southern kingdom started right there around Jerusalem or so and went south. Uh, tribes of Judah and Simeon and Benjamin were in the southern kingdom. All the rest were in the northern kingdom. There was a lot of tension between the two. Uh, Assyria invades the northern kingdom, carries them away. Uh, God preserves the southern kingdom. They're maintained. Uh, what Assyria does is then occupies all of the area north of Jerusalem. Uh, so uh, eventually the Babylonians come in and they take the Assyrians. Uh, they take Jerusalem as well, Judah uh, Simeon and the Benjamites are taken. Uh, they're carried away. Seventy years later, the Persians come and defeat the, Babylon the Babylonians, and King Cyrus sends the Jews back to Jerusalem and gives them their land back. Now, through the whole thing, somehow the Jews in the southern kingdom remain very Jewish, but the people living in the northern kingdom become an amalgam of ethnicities. Uh, they're intermarried. Uh, the, eventually, uh, Samaria, which lies between Jerusalem and the Sea of Galilee, uh, has a, a, a rift with Jerusalem. They come up with their own mountain to worship on. They come up with their own temple. Uh, they are viewed as a little bit less than human uh, to the Jews. But up in Galilee, there's an even more diluted mixture and Galilee has little or no regard to the people in Jerusalem. So the, the culture by the time we get to the first century is that Jerusalem is the sophisticated epicenter of the faith. And the Samaritans immediately to the north of them are just not very well regarded. And the Galileans a little bit north to them are even a little less regarded. They're kind of viewed as a bunch of redneck fishermen that can't do anything. They're not very smart, they're not very educated, they're not good for doing too much more than fishing and farming. So Nazareth was right on the border of Samaria and Galilee. The Samaritans didn't like the Nazarites because they associated them with the Galileans. The Galileans didn't like the Nazarites because they associated them with the Samaritans. The Jews didn't like any of them. So when we hear that an angel is being sent to Nazareth, the Jews in Jerusalem would go, why on earth would an angel go to Nazareth? Later on, we would hear that nothing good comes out of Nazareth. So right away, we see that there's a cloud hanging over this story. So in verse 27, the angel comes to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So Joseph is a devout Jew living in a little bit of a hostile environment, okay? And he's betrothed. Now, they, they have made the commitment. The cows and chickens have changed hands, uh, but the marriage ceremony has not taken place yet. Uh, but it was as good as sealed. There was no trial engagement. There was no, we'll see if it works out. It's once the agreement was made, they were considered married. So they're waiting for the marriage celebration. And the angel came to her, Mary, and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. 
Now, Mary understands the Jewish faith. She understands the meaning of the presence of an angel, but it kind of scares her. It kind of unnerves her. What's going on? You know, he says favored one, but she's not quite sure. And the angel said to her, as angels frequently say to people when we encounter them, he says, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, I'm not totally sure that Mary felt favored at that point. She's a Nazarite. She's a Galilean. She's associated with the Samaritans. She's betrothed. There's some hope in her life, so she has that to look forward to, but now she's standing in front of this angel, and the angel's about to say something important, so there's some apprehension here. And in verse 31, we find out what the apprehension is about. And behold, you will conceive in your room and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So God is going to do for Mary what he did for Leah. He is going to open Mary's womb. Now, is this good news? Well, we don't know all the details yet, okay? In verse 32, the angel says, He, the child, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. This girl is probably 14 years old as she's hearing this. And you can see her going, what? And he will reign over the house of who? Jacob. A direct relation to Jacob and Leah in our story, okay? He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how's this going to be since I'm a virgin? This is not where babies come from. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, you need to read what Mary just heard. The father's not going to be Joseph. There's going to be a supernatural occurrence in your body. And you're going to have a baby. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now Mary just got bad news. You're going to be pregnant before you're married to Joseph. Again, culturally, we're talking about a whole new dynamic here. Uh, I mean, Mary could be stoned for this. Joseph, if he allows it, he could be stoned for this. All of Mary's hopes and all of Mary's dreams on her life with Joseph seem to be going down the tube. But Mary can't deny that something unusual is happening. And what she does is absolutely incredible. She doesn't say, well, wait a minute, I had plans. <laughs> wait a minute, I have expectations. Wait a minute, I always thought my life would be this way. She says, Lord, have your way with me. She surrenders fully to God. She said, whatever the plan is, I'll embrace it. And in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Here's an indication of what Mary's going to go through for the rest of her life. 
I mean, at some point, she begins to show that she's pregnant. And she goes to Judah, 90 miles, apparently by herself. What family allows their daughter to travel 90 miles through dangerous territory, robbers and thieves and killers, on her own? A family that says, maybe it would be better if you went away, Mary. We don't know that. That's my conjecture. But that's what it looks like to me. You know, Mary, um, maybe if you took a little trip, maybe the neighbors wouldn't see. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So I don't know Mary's visage, but it could very well have been downtrodden. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry. Now, this is before Mary says anything to Elizabeth, okay? Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord, capital L, should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So there's affirmation, there's verification that God is doing something in Mary's life. It all kind of comes together right there in front of Elizabeth, 90 miles from her home, dependent upon her cousin and, and her cousin's husband to take care of her. And what does Mary do? She gives praise. Next thing we see is the Magnificat. It's right there in the following verses, verses 45 through 56. Read it when you get home. It's incredible. She's given God the glory. It's prophetic. It's, it's a summary of the history of the, the Jewish people and looking forward to their redemption. Mary is throwing herself at the feet of God and saying, I will give you praise regardless of what my situation looks like. But you know what? There are still problems. Because if we turn to Matthew chapter 1, go ahead, Matthew 1, starting with 19. we find out that Joseph is not yet on the program. He's not quite sure what's going on. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, he's got some regard. He loves Mary. He's trying to take care of her. He's trying to do this quietly. This can be done kind of under the radar, but papers have to be filed. Priests have to be talked to. Reasons have to be given. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, I mean, isn't this similar to what had happened to Jacob? He had a dream, and when he woke up, he realized how important the dream was. It's transformational. A stirring starts in Joseph's heart. A transformation begins in him, drawing him closer to God, giving him the strength to submit, 
When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So Mary, like Leah, has a husband, has to undergo a transformation in order to walk in the will of the Lord. They live in Nazareth until the census is called for. And and you know the story. They go to Bethlehem. The baby's born. But i got to tell you something. That's not the end of Mary's problems. Mary will live with misunderstanding and the stigma of an illegitimate birth hanging over her all her life. She will watch her son endure accusations and whispers and contempt. If you look at John 8, 19, you'd have to turn there right now. But Jesus is standing before the Pharisees, and they said to him, therefore, where is your father? Now, they're not asking a question. They know the status. What they're saying to Jesus is, we know you don't have a father. We know that Joseph is not your father. That's what the records back there say. But we all know what happened with Mary. And in John 8, 41, uh, Jesus says to do the, the Pharisees, you're doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we, watch this, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. God is our father. You have no father. Mary had to watch all this happen. She had to endure it for the rest of her life. Not only that, she knew that her son was the Messiah. And if she was familiar with scripture, she would know what would happen to him. What was prophesied over her was that there would be an arrow to her heart. So we have Leah and Mary. Two simple women from simple cultures, separated by 1,500 years. Cultures where honor, family, and childbearing were of a high value, held in high esteem. Two women living with shame, living with embarrassment. Two outcasts. Two women that might be called useless. Two women that had doubtful futures. Disregarded. And God used both of them. He used both of them in their weakness, in their inability. He used them both powerfully. He used them both in the face of ridicule and scorn. Just as he would use both their babies in the same manner. Except one of them would save the world. Leah becomes a shadow of Mary. And what do we learn from this? We learn that God uses the useless. God uses the outcasts. He uses the weak. He not only uses them, I believe he revels in them. I believe he takes great pleasure in them. I believe he uses them to reveal his glory, to reveal his transformation. I believe that he honors them and blesses them. Now what does that mean to you and me? I think we can learn a lot from these two girls. But the primary lesson is this. When these two women trusted God in spite of their situations, when they put all their reliance and all their trust on him, God made something incredible happen. He changed the world through them. They submitted to him totally. 
They said, regardless of what it looks like around me, regardless of what my friends are saying, regardless of what people think about me, regardless of what my expectations were, regardless of what my desires are, I will submit to you, Father. I'll go through whatever you want me to go through to get where you want me to go. And look what God did. Literally saved the world through them. In their submission to him, they found everything that they wanted and desired. Isn't that a picture of the gospel? Isn't that what we're celebrating as we come together for these next couple weeks? Those who submit to the Father, those who obey his, his command to repent, receive everything we could ever want and desire, receive everything beyond our wildest imagination. God does something incredible with our obedience to him, with our submission to him. He saves us. He saves us and gives us eternal life. I think that's some good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the incredible way that you move through the lives of the people in these narratives, Father, and through our lives as well. We pray that you give us a vision, Father, of your hand moving through us, moving through our hearts, moving through our situations, Father. That you give us a picture of Jesus Christ and all that we have in him, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.